1: Buckeye Talk is brought to you by ShopOhioState.com and the Ohio State University Barnes & Noble Bookstore located at 1598 North High Street and online at ShopOhioState.com for the finest Ohio State apparel and MinutemanTickets.com. Make our ticket guys your ticket guys with MinutemanTickets.com.
0: Buckeye Talk is about to begin Hey, 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 come on in
1: Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Doug Maurice from Cleveland.com here for a midweek assessment of what is going on with the Ohio State Buckeyes. You can read me at Cleveland.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Doug Maurice. You can drop the reviews on iTunes for Buckeye Talk. You can also follow us on Twitter at Buckeye Talk Pod, and uh, email us at BuckeyeTalkPod at gmail.com. All right, here's where we are. We have a co-host again this week, and Chad Peltier was awesome last week. It's my fault the connection wasn't a little better. Um, I've heard some people say it was a little, little tinny, um, but Chad did a fantastic job from Atlanta, and this week we wanted a co-host who could be there live. So uh, a loyal listener uh, and former sports writer, it turns out, named Seth Shaner. You can find him uh, on Twitter, at ShanerBomb, and there's a story about that. Uh, Sent me a lovely email this week and offered his services, uh, outlining his 12 years as a sports writer, his experience as a podcast host. He did student radio at Ohio State. Uh, He's a, a loyal follower of the podcast and of the Buckeyes. And so we met at a library on Tuesday afternoon and did a big chunk of this podcast. So that's what you're going to get for most of this podcast is me and Shanerbaum assessing the Buckeyes and answering your questions. And um, I'm going to get to a couple other things first because I just want to explain that I'm in a lousy mood. And I explained this already, and part of that is why I'm in an even lousier mood, and it's now 1 o'clock in the morning, Wednesday night, and I'm sitting in my basement uh, by myself with my family asleep above me, uh, finishing the intro to this podcast, because it's just been one of those days. And I explained all this stuff, and I screwed up the recording with Shane Bob, because the freaking iPhone, new iOS, voice... recording makes it very difficult to save something. And so I miss saved two separate chunks of this podcast. Luckily, I had a backup recording going early on for like 90% of the first chunk. And for the second chunk, we had the backup plus Seth had his phone going. So we only missed a few minutes, but we missed the introduction of Seth. So when we get to the Seth part, we're going to just go right into talking, and it's because I missed the intro, didn't record. And in that intro, Seth Shaner explained why his name is Bomb on Twitter, and it's because back in the early days of social media, he thought Shanerbaum sounded like a cool name for the ladies. How good is that? Bomb is for the ladies, now he's married and has two kids! That's how long ago this man was on social media. So um, my computer, the keys are stuck. Like the O key is sticking and I have to hit it 10 times to make the O work. And let me tell you, when you cover Ohio State football, the O key sticking is enough to drive you crazy. Then the L Keys started sticking, which is at the end of football, you may notice, and I beat the arm of my lounge chair here in the basement so hard on Tuesday afternoon that I thought I might have broken my hand um, when the L key stuck. So that happened. Um, it was just, it's it, there's some computer malfunctioning. There was training sessions because we're switching stuff over, and I didn't have time for the training session, but I did it. So, I'm in a lousy mood. I'm in a ticked off mood. So, I think it matches. If you're ticked off about the Buckeyes losing by 29 to Purdue, hopefully this podcast will match your level of ticked off because, you know, I'm not ticked off about the 29-point thing because I'm a professional and I just cover the team, but I'm sure ticked off about my O key and my L key. So, we're going to get to that. Lots of good questions. Lots of good answers. We really hit the email questions this week on Gmail. Um, I also was going to do a whole lead-in about people overreacting to Urban Meyer and how he looks on the sideline, but then I accidentally talked about it with Seth, so I don't want to duplicate myself here. So what I do want to do is uh, thank you guys for the reviews and let you know I had said when Bill Landis left, we were a five-star podcast, I would moderate or I would follow where we were. What happened after Bill left? And I will tell you right now, to be a five-star podcast on iTunes, you must be a 4.75 or higher rating. And no joke, with 574 total reviews for this podcast, I will tell you right now, I swear to God, we are 4.749. So we're four and a half stars as I speak to you screaming angrily from my basement. But I appreciate all the kind reviews. Lots of nice five star things people saying. I wanted to say one because I put it on Twitter the other day. Um, this one from Pronounced Like Art Schleister. When I first started listening, I could not stand Doug. Thought he was annoying. But like a fungus, he has grown on me, and I will not miss a show with just Doug. Best in the biz asking questions. Hope you get a co host, but if you don't, I'll still tune in. I have never been compared to anything better than a fungus. So thank you for the fungus comparison and thanks to everyone else for the reviews. Let's um, get to some questions. I want to hit a couple of these um, because Seth and I did about an hour and 20 minutes because we were in the library and we only had the library conference room for like an hour and a half and then like a Girl Scout troop was coming in and there were library announcements that were happening there. And it was at the Westerville Library. I didn't want Seth to be in my fart-smelling basement. I did not want to do that to him. So we did it in a more professional podcast setting. But now I'm in my basement by myself. So I can just do this thing. And I'm going to answer a few questions here. Again, you guys brought it with um, the questions. And let me get to a couple of them before we get to Seth. Tom LaGrasso at Big Tom Lowe. Do you feel as concerned about Nebraska as I do? No. Last year when Ohio State lost to Iowa, they came back the next week and crushed Michigan State. I think the bye week has had a good time for this team. I think Nebraska stinks. I think Nebraska is a get well game. Um, I think Nebraska, yes, just beat Minnesota, and that was their first win of the season, and, and Minnesota had given Ohio State trouble, but... There's a lot of things that go into that. I do not think Nebraska is a problem. I think this is a good get well game. So um, again, I think possibly I got some pushback on, on saying the idea that Purdue is good. And that contributed to that loss is the idea that Purdue, especially offensively, is a good football team. Um, they're much better than Nebraska. So I, I, do not, I do not seek reason for concern against Nebraska. They're not at that point. Eric Bronstein, E. Bronstein, always asks good questions. How come nobody is blaming Ryan Day for the run game issues? He is the primary offensive coordinator and play caller. And this is very interesting, and I ran out of time this week to write write a lot of things I wanted to write. But on Monday, I wanted to write a comparison between what's happening with the Browns and happening with Ohio State, because you have two head coaches with assistant coaches who are, are doing some questionable things, and it's about... Dividing blame, basically, on how much goes to the head coach, how much goes to the assistants who maybe are making calls, but of course the head coach is ultimately in charge. So um, we know there's some Hugh Jackson-Todd Haley conflict right now uh, with the Browns. And in the end, I still blame Hugh because Hugh hired Todd Haley. Hugh's the guy in charge. The buck stops at Hugh. On a lot of levels, the buck stops at Urban Meyer. And so, yeah, we can go to the coordinators but the buck stops with Urban Meyer, and I do think there is an interesting way of, of analyzing this, of what they did without Urban Meyer and what they did uh, with Urban Meyer once he came back. Um, I do think it's interesting, though, that everybody was all in on Ryan Day for three games, and then there is – there is responsibility here with the play caller that they can't exactly get things figured out in the red zone, and that's where this matters. And I know when I've asked Ryan Day repeatedly about red zone things, about run game things, he always says sometimes we make the right call and it's not executed, and sometimes we make the wrong call. But I do think they need some better red zone plays. I think they had red zone plays that could have been executed, balls that could have been shot, uh, caught. But I also don't know that I'm seeing the creativity of, Um, I don't know that I'm seeing the way you saw Rondale Moore get freed up. I don't know that we're seeing KJ Hill and Paris Campbell get freed up like that in the red zone. And I think we could. Um, I don't know that they're running the right running game calls exactly to give JK Dobbins and Mike Weber the best chance. So I think it's a reminder. Um, People thought they couldn't live without Ryan Day. Everybody has good moments and bad moments I do think there's some question about the meshing of the offense with Urban Meyer back. I said repeatedly when Ryan Day was running the show, when Urban was out, that he just got to line up and do what he wanted to do. And now you add Urban Meyer back in and it gets a little more complicated. But I do think Ryan Day still has, pretty much is able to do what he wants to do here. So I do think it's a reminder from Eric Bronstein um, that the buck stops with Urban, but everybody loved Ryan Day early. If you loved him early, I think it's okay to have some critiques of him at this point. Uh, Adam Grinstead, AC Grinstead, why doesn't a 29-point loss to Purdue disqualify Ohio State from the college football playoff? Unless they get a rematch in the Big Ten championship, I feel like that's really, really hurtful, especially if Purdue loses another game. Uh, Listen, we might be in a situation where we're talking about a two-loss team potentially making the college football playoff. Um, We're almost there in the Pac-12. I think everybody out there except Washington State has two losses. I think we could get there in the Big 12, I would not be surprised if if Oklahoma and Texas each lose again. I don't think they're great. Um, I think Notre Dame's going to lose. There are just more losses out there, and and and, and I I'm going to repeat what I've said before. I think a 12 and one Ohio State team is in. I think the important thing to remember about the Iowa loss last year is that it was coupled with another loss. I think Michigan is Ohio State's best friend. Michigan's going to be a top-five team if they keep winning, coming to Ohio Stadium. If Ohio State wins that game, that's a huge win. And I think the winner of the Ohio State-Michigan game, if that team wins the Big Ten championship, beating whoever it is from the West, I think they're in. And and I think Ohio State has a chance to put this loss behind them because that's the way it works. I don't think it's disqualifying. I understand the idea that it's going to get hung up a little bit for the committee. But if you beat Michigan— you're going to show the committee that you're a different team because that team Saturday night is not going to beat Michigan. <clears throat> so whenever we talk about this, we are assuming the best case scenario for Ohio State. If they play like they did Saturday, they're going to lose against Michigan. So if they beat Michigan, they will be a different team than the one that lost Saturday to Purdue. So I just, I don't think it's disqualifying. I it, You know, we talked about this famously, Reese Davis talked about the Virginia Tech albatross all of 2014. And then it wasn't that. So I just I don't think any one loss is disqualifying. I think when you have two losses, you start adding things together. That's different. But there are only three major undefeated teams left. They're going to get lumped in with a lot of one-loss teams. Some of those one-loss teams are going to suffer a second loss. I would not disqualify him. Uh, Joe at underscore OSU, do you believe Haskins will still go to the NFL? And do you think the weak quarterback draft class this year influences him to leave? I do think it's interesting. It's one of those reverse things where... Um, if Dwayne Haskins is perfect, that helps Ohio State this year. But then he's certainly gone. If he's human, in a few moments, that's not good for Ohio State. But it might be good for him sticking around. I know there is the theory of uh, of one year starters at quarterback. Maybe some teams don't want them. But Mitch Trubisky was a one year starter. He started off rough this year. In his second year, he's looked good lately, Has looked good lately in the NFL. Seems like Justin Herbert from Oregon is everybody's number one quarterback. And I know. Ben Albright, who's an NFL, an NFL guy that I've had on my other podcast. I respect his opinion. He has Haskins, I think, is his number two guy right now. So I still would anticipate him leaving. Assume he's gone. Uh, but even though he put up huge stats the other night, he missed a couple throws. And I do think he's not as athletic as some quarterbacks that are going to end up going out. He's a little bit more of an old-style NFL pocket passer. So it's one of those things, you know, if if – Ohio State season gets a little bit south. That probably increases the chances of Dwayne Haskins coming back. But is anybody going to root for things to go wrong to keep him for an- another year? It's the dichotomy of these guys who have NFL chances. If you're a fan, I think you root for the guy, you root for the kid, you root for your team, and then you wish him best of luck when he leaves. All right, last one. Then we're going to get to the break and we're going to bring Seth in so you don't have to hear me shouting in my basement anymore. At Alex... E. Baker, is it just me or is it insane that people are calling for Urban's job? I can count on two hands the amount of games Ohio State has lost under him in seven seasons, not to mention a national title, Big Ten titles, and countless individual awards and NFL players. I do think it's insane. Um, I think people want to get out ahead on some of this stuff, um, and I'm not sure why. It's the way things work, and I understand that. Um And I'm someone who has called for people to be fired before. Um, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast or not. If I have told it, I apologize for it being a repeat, but I think it might be new. When I was a young beat writer covering the Philadelphia Phillies, Terry Francona, now the Indians manager, was a manager of the Phillies. And I decided late one season that as the beat writer, I had a Sunday column for the Wilmington News Journal, which was. Uh, in Delaware, basically in suburban Philadelphia. I was a traveling beat writer, one of three guys who went to almost every game. So, you know, I was like a legit dude. I was young. And I decided to write my Sunday column on the idea that Terry Franconer should be fired. Um, And I wrote it and went in that Sunday to the the clubhouse um, with the other beat writers as we did before every game. And, And in my column, I had used something in the lead about Um, You may not know what number Terry Francona is because he always wears his pullover. Um, Just so you know, it's number seven and he may not be wearing it much longer because he should be fired. So we walk into the clubhouse and we're sitting there and Terry Francona says, hey, Doug, uh, I'm going to put my pullover on it. Is that okay with you? And obviously he has read that I am suggesting as a very young beat writer that he should be fired. Um, And, you know, that's you write it, you show up, you take it, but I learned a lesson there of, uh, of um, just being a little more circumspect with with making calls about people being fired. Um, it doesn't mean I haven't done it. I, I He got fired at the end of that season, by the way, so I was right. Uh, I later called for the general manager of the Phillies to be fired, and when I did, I called him and I told him, I'm writing for tomorrow that I think you should be fired. And he called me back and we had a discussion about it, but but it didn't surprise him. So um, I think you, you, over time, you learn about um, that firing um, is not the same as suggesting someone's doing a bad job. You can suggest someone is doing a bad job or failed in a moment without suggesting they be fired. Now, I think Bill Davis should be fired. I understand he's not going to be fired in the middle of this year. I think he should not come back next year because I don't think he's done a good job. And I think it would do Ohio State good to fire him. Um, I don't know that I would call for a firing of anybody else on this staff, even though I wrote a whole column this week about the mistakes that Urban made as hiring I, in hiring the staff. I think, I think he has too many guys he knows. I think they have too many positions where they don't have the best guy available. But I'm not saying anyone else should be outright fired right now this second. That's not my opinion, other than Bill Davis, who I think has been a, a problem since he was hired. And I certainly do not think that Urban Meyer should be fired. I'm ticked off already. I punched my chair. The thing didn't record. And I just read another thing that you guys haven't read yet. You're going to read it Wednesday morning. And it makes me more ticked off. And it's bluster. And it's bluster from a couch. And it's the kind of thing that just bothers me. It's not nuanced. Um, And I understand overreactions in the moment. And fans can overreact. That's what fans are supposed to do. You're supposed to be angry. And anger is just another sign of love. Right, in sports teams, when you yell at your kid, it's because you love them and you they frustrate you and you care so much and you want them to learn. Um, so I get that with your sports teams, but to to immediately go from frustration to suggesting that urban Meyer should lose his job, um, I think it's I think it's very difficult. I think if you think that he should have been fired as a result of the Zach Smith stuff, I think that's one thing. Um, I think if you're trying to link the two, I think you have to make a cogent argument of why the first one and the second one are linked and they lost to Purdue plus the Zach Smith stuff. It just is it's all too much. Get him out of here. And I think if you were trying to say, you know, they were headed towards this, their offense is stale, he doesn't have the fire anymore. I can tell by the way he looks in the sidelines, he could be fired. Um, and we talk about this more with Seth, but I, I think it's an overreaction. I think it's Very possible that they're going to get this straightened out, and then if you reacted that way, you're going to feel silly in a little bit. But that's fine. That's fine. That's what fans do, and I understand that. But I just think there is a way to be frustrated and upset and want change without necessarily immediately going to fire the three-time national championship head coach uh, who has nine losses at Ohio State in seven years. So um, we're going to get to Seth. We always appreciate you guys. Uh, with the questions. We really appreciate you with the reviews. Um, and we're going to bring in our friend Seth. It's just going to start up. All right. This is Seth Shaner, Shaner Bomb, the social media dude with the cool Twitter Twitter handle for the ladies from like 20 years ago, whenever social media started. And uh, we're going to take a quick break, um, hear a message from our loyal sponsors uh, at shopohiostate.com. And then we're going to ease right on in with the bomb on Buckeye Talk. Hey everybody! You ever have those moments when you're so frustrated you want to smash your computer into a thousand pieces? Whenever that happens to me, I like to relax by going to shopohiostate.com and perusing the great selection of Ohio State apparel from the Barnes and Noble Ohio State University bookstore. For instance, right now I'd like to take my O key and my L key and shove it somewhere. Instead, I'm looking at the Cutter and Buck long sleeve dry tech Edge full zip. Sweatshirt, it's online only, $89.98. Maybe that sounds like a lot. This thing is beautiful. This is a lovely Christmas gift, a birthday gift. Maybe treat yourself. How about the Nike Men's Fit full zip hoodie? $85, beautiful, dark gray, the scarlet stripe on the front. So many cool things that you can buy from ShopOhioState.com. They have gifts. They have all kinds of apparel for men, women, youth, infants and toddlers, kids, anything you could possibly think of. Hats, tops, hoodies, uh, scarves, socks, anything you want. So the next time your computer makes you want to freak out and punch something instead, relax and visit shopohiostate.com. I think the bye week is huge. Mm -hmm. I think it is the perfect time for a loss. Uh, Urban Meyer was just talking about that today in the Big Ten coaches' call, that you just don't have time during a normal week to to re-scheme. You sort of are who you are Mm -hmm. once you get to a season. And I wrote a thing earlier this morning on Tuesday morning about the idea that I do think, and this was off a question on Twitter, I do think Urban Meyer missing training camp we're maybe seeing the effect of that. That right. It feels like he doesn't know his team as well as he usually knows them. And, and they're cha- they changed the offense, right? They had to. It's the right thing to do. It's obvious. We all would have done the same thing. Dwayne Haskins is the quarterback. You can't do what you did with JT Barrett. But to add a the indefinite leave during all of camp, on top of a time when you are Breaking in an entirely new offense when you don't when you lost a lot of your senior leaders right it was an uh, perhaps uh, the, the worst of all possible worlds to combine all those things and so to me when you get to the end of the Purdue game after the eighth game and Urban Meyer is saying things like I don't know why we can't run and Bill Landis is the one who asked it in that cramped locker room on Saturday night he, Bill said lots of teams run from the shotgun without a running threaded quarterback. Why can't you? And he said, if, it, if I had a one sentence answer, I'd give it to you. It's much more complicated than that. And it is more complicated than that. But this is a week and two weeks really, but really this bye week is a time to figure out complicated things. So I do think they will. I think they will, I think like personnel wise, they're not going to fire any coaches, right? I mean, like, some people want that. That's fine if you want that, and this is not the same as Lincoln Riley firing whichever random stoops was the previous <laughs> defensive coordinator. This is not the same at that, as that, and I've said that. They're not going to fire anybody. I don't know that they're going to bench anybody. I wouldn't be surprised if they make maybe one move on the offensive line. I think they could make three. I think I've said before I'd go Michael Jordan left guard, either Brady Taylor or Josh Myers at center, and I'd put Brandon Bowen at right guard. I think we may see something more like, if Brandon Bowen is healthy, he's in the mix at right guard, and that's all. Mm -hmm. So I think on some level, there will be fewer changes than a lot of people want, but I think on another level, I don't think they can just come out and run the same offense. I think they're going to come up with more run plays that aren't RPOs, and more run plays that aren't zone read. I think they're going to come up with that, and I think they're going to tweak the the defense. I think think we are going to see the linebackers back off because Jeff Brom said that. Yes. Jeff! Brom said it. Not me, not Shanerbaum, not you on Twitter, not all the people who, who all year have said, why are the linebackers so close to the line of scrimmage? Jeff Brom said it. And Jeff Brom said, well, we saw that and we thought, let's get Rondale Moore over the middle of the field. And you know what really worked? Rondale Moore over the middle of the field. Now, to be fair, Rondale Moore worked everywhere. Mm-hmm. But I think there are things to change. I think maybe there's more room to change because of the idea that Urban Meyer didn't know this team as well before the season. Um, I think the bye week is the perfect opportunity. Last week or not last week, last year, after they lost to Iowa, they came out and thumped Michigan State. Now it wasn't a bye week, but they came out and thumped Michigan State the next week. That was more of just getting back to what they always were doing. It was more of a bad game against Iowa. This was more of a, a sign that you need to change things. So. I think things will change. I think they need to change. They will change not as much as you want, but they will change to some extent. So, so I guess, Seth, my question is, like, having watched Ohio State as much as you've watched Ohio State over the years, what is your belief in Urban Meyer being able to change, in wanting to change? Because, for instance, we had lots of talks last year. I, I said I would have benched JT Barrett after Oklahoma and played Dwayne Haskins, but you knew he wasn't mm-hmm. going to do that. So, do you think he can change enough to get this right?
0: I think he's capable, and I think he's got the right guys in Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson to help him do it. But, but the, you said the key word, does he want to? That's what scared me the most last winter. All, all the talk about Joe Burrow or Dwayne Haskins, I was convinced, and I emailed you guys at the podcast, I was convinced that it was Haskins all along after what we saw against Michigan. I had little doubt. My fear was... Will they change the offense enough for this more of a standstill quarterback, a throwing quarterback? And it's funny because they have, from a passing game since, done that more. I never, I never, I would have thought it would have been more like scary Cardale Jones running the, the option back in 15 when he and Zeke are trying to get together and, and Cardale just couldn't run the option. I right. thought they'd keep doing that. But what's happened is they've changed by letting him throw more. But the run game has stayed the same. It's a read option almost every time out of shotgun. That's a two-handed handoff. And, and, you know, I've watched that intently since Urban came back. Every handoff is a two-handed handoff as if it's a read option. But everybody in the stadium and on TV knows it's going to be a running back run. So that's where they didn't change. That's where they did not change the offense. Now, I will tell you, you didn't rewatch it yet, twice during the Purdue game, they ran more outside running plays, where it wasn't that Dobbins saw something inside didn't work and he bounced it outside. It was more of a stretch running play. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ran that twice earlier in the game. But then, of course, they threw it 73 times, partially because they were down and partially because that's who they are now. So maybe they were trying to change it already at that point, and this will just lead into it. But again, the question more is, does he, will he? It's not so much can he, because I think they have the players and the staff to do it. But but urban, we, you talked about it all year last year about being stuck in his ways. Yeah. After the Nebraska loss, everybody said the game had passed him by. Right. And then they run the table. Yeah.
1: No. And that was, I mean, and that's the thing that uh, it's funny how much the conversation this year mm-hmm. is is very similar to what it was a year ago after Iowa. And I think there are some people, and I'm gonna, I, I wanted to write about this for today, and I didn't get to it. Um, and there's a lot of this talk out there right now about, and Urban was asked about it, about the friction. If there's, is a friction between Urban and Gene Smith? And um, like, what's up with him? The, the Kirk Herbstreet said on the Dan Patrick show, he looks anguished mm-hmm. on the sideline and that kind of thing. Um, I think people are reaching a little bit on that. And I have a whole theory. I have about 50 theories about that. And this podcast would be, the library would be closed <laughs> and we'd be locked and sleeping in this conference room if I went into all of it. Um so let me do the synopsis of this very quickly. I think for people who really follow Ohio State, sports. For a couple of years, you thought you saw something with Thad Mata. Mm-hmm. You thought you saw something physically with Thad Mata that made you question his longevity as a coach. And in the end, that's what it was. And in the end, Gene Smith... After deciding to keep Thad Mata at the end of that season, then had another meeting with Thad Mata and basically just like decided he. This is what Gene Smith said, like in that moment he just didn't look right. This feels like time for a change. So your fears, your predictions were born out. This guy looks physically, emotionally, mentally like he's running out of juice. And then Gene Smith basically made the same determination. They got rid of Thad and Chris Holtman has come in and been awesome. So I'm not sure that's what Kirk Herbstreet and Paul Feinbaum and anything are thinking about, but to me as an Ohio State observer of everything, that's what's in the back of my head because I know people love to get ahead of it. People Mm want to be right. People want to make a prediction that comes true because if you make a prediction and you're wrong, people forget it. If you make a prediction and you're right, you're a genius. So I think people are very eager to read things into the Urban Meyer situation, and when you add together the Zach Smith situation at the start of the year, the fact that Urban Meyer a couple of weeks ago went to his knees during the game on the sideline because of the cyst in his head, that has been an issue. The fact that maybe he just, to your eye, does not look quite as vivacious and healthy as he had sometimes, and now for the second straight year they have a terrible loss then you have this Thad Mata thing, maybe or maybe not, in the back of your head. And you start to draw conclusions. You start to look and think, I've pieced this together. Urban Meyer is losing it. This is his last year. And I just, I think there are a lot of little pieces that people are, are turning into a final equation But the math doesn't really add up. I'm not saying it's not his final year, but I think people are reaching on like, you can tell that this is falling apart. And I just think it's a dangerous trend that is fueled by people wanting something more than, man, they screwed up in the red zone and this linebacker thing is Mm bullcrap. Like, I think that might be about it. And of course, the Zach Smith thing, whatever, I wrote a thing. I think maybe he didn't get to know his team as well. In the preseason, so I think there's a lot of little things. I am not at the point where I am piecing together all these things I just said and drawing a conclusion of Urban Meyer's lost it. This is it. But there is a lot. There's a lot of talk right now about that. And so when you hear that, Seth, again, just as someone who cares about Ohio State, who watches Ohio State, and I would imagine who wants what is best for Ohio State first and foremost. Is that correct? Yes.
0: How do you view that question right now? Well, I, I could see it both ways. For, first of all, if you watch this team and you watch Irvin Meyer since he's been here, he on the field, he wears his emotions on the sleeve. I, like I, was it Curtis Samuel when he scored the touchdown against Michigan yep. two years ago? Uh, urban f- collapsed on the ground not like from going to his knee like he did from the the headache but but he collapsed on the ground he was spent he was done there's there's been turnovers in the past several years where he looks like you know his dog just died I mean it, there's there's times in the past where he's done this but we don't have this now as far as the Zach Smith hangover it could be there uh, you know conspiracy theories abound I mean but but the thing in the report said that he suffers from memory loss because of the medication. Everybody, everybody was reminded about the the surgery he had in 2014 and the cyst in his head. You've already referenced it. Uh, a Conspiracy theory that I kind of kick out the of the way. But but does he is he playing this up? Is he is he like is that weighing on him so much that that he knows the cameras on him and he's making these kind of gestures and faces? I don't know. Um, it's interesting, I was listening to ESPNU Radio today and Rick Neuheisel has a show with a, another guy, I, I'm blanking on his name but Neuheisel, the coach said, boy I'd love to be him or Kirby Smart this week, getting ready for a game after a loss. As a coach, there's nothing better when you know you have talented players than to be in there. Well his co-host says, I could see that with Kirby Smart but I don't see that with Urban because Urban's got this hangover from Zach Smith and Neuheisel disagreed completely but his co-host said, no, look at his his face on the sidelines. He looks like he's not as engaged. He looks like he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. I don't know. I, I guess it could go either way. But, but right now that's all we can go off of because they have a, lo- a loss that's hard to explain. I,
1: I think there are a lot of people playing uh, couch psychologist mm-hmm. and couch doctor. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's dangerous. I mean, it's just – it's." It's dangerous and I understand I mean fans can do it all you want. I mean for that to be like a for for like your opinion as like a media member mm-hmm. with authority to be like he doesn't look right. Right. And and, and again, like maybe you're maybe in the end it's going to be correct and then oh, you saw this coming. Um but but I don't know how you can just sort of base your opinion on that. Right now, like, why do you think Urban Meyer's lost it? Well, I saw the way he looked on the sideline, and it's like, really? Yeah. Like that's he looked he looked anguished during a blowout loss. It's like, okay, like I don't know if you if you want to. It's the prism that you look at things through. If you want to put a different prism and then show people photos of Nick Saban on the sideline when Nick Saban looks, it means Nick Saban wins the national championship and they're dumping Gatorade on him and he looks like the angriest man in the world. That's not the look of a healthy, happy person, but it doesn't mean that Nick Saban's done. So as you said, Urban's kind of always worn his emotions on his sleeve. I would love to have a conversation with him about, are you enjoying this? Are you getting the same out of this? Um, there, was a, there was a conversation we had uh, at Big Ten Media Days. Right in the mix of, it was like one of the set of questions I asked him was about the Zach Smith stuff, and we all know how those answers went. But the uh, another set of questions I asked him about in that same setting was the idea that he's never been at a school for seven years before. This is the longest he's been anywhere, is now year seven at Ohio State as a head coach. And he was talking about the idea of you can't stay the same. You have to keep building. And he seemed to be seizing year seven as an opportunity for like a reset, as an opportunity for let's examine everything we do and see how we can do it better. I think you see that with recruiting. Um, I don't know that you see it in the scheme. And I think when people say like, yeah, maybe their scheme's getting a little tired. You know, Ryan Day is a good hire. He's doing a good job. There's always a back and forth about Urban's hand in the cookie jar and how much... Should he be in there? Should he not be? But he was very motivated. It seemed to me by the challenge of trying to avoid being stable. Mm-hmm. So a lot has happened since then. But in that moment, that's not that long ago. His cyst issue was the same then and as, as it is now. It wasn't that was July. It was not that long ago, and he seemed motivated eager to attack this knowing he's reached a point he had never reached in his career in year seven and yeah it's it's been a little goofy since then but the other thing is they're seven and one and people overreact sometimes to the first loss it's not like they're three and four if they were three and four or three and five or whatever I'm spitting on Shane you're getting the full experience here Shane or bomb. <laughs> If they were three and five and you want to start playing the game of amateur psychologist, okay, because you're searching for everything because they've absolutely collapsed. This is not an absolute collapse. This is some issues that you saw that came to a head against Purdue. But this is not an absolute collapse to the point that the program is in disarray, in my opinion, Seth.
0: My pushback to you on July media days not being that long ago, while we look at it and it's not, that was before everything that happened. The Zach Smith stuff hit. He was he was removed from the program throughout entire training camp that started the next week or two. And again, what you said is right about if you're a real journalist, maybe you shouldn't be judging by a facial expression where a guy is in his career. But after all that, after you and everybody else spent all that time at the uh, is it the house with waiting right. on the decision. The, the, the press conference that night, Urban Meyer looked terrible. He did. He looked exhausted. He looked mentally beat up. He looked, like, he looked terrible. And I think he rebounded from that because he had to go take control of his team and it was kind of put behind him once he was not suspended anymore. But a lot has happened in that time. And so the, the theory that maybe there's a Zach Smith hangover, if you want to go down that road, you can. Now, as a former sports writer, now a fan again, I want people like yourself to go to the press conference and be a journalist. Right. Um, The guys on a talk radio show maybe aren't journalists. Maybe they're just entertainers and they can give their opinions more often. But, you know, anybody could watch that press conference at the Longaberger house and say, my goodness, he looks completely beat. That was a long day, um, but I agree with that. I also
1: think, like, it's... You're on alert for this stuff. When I go in on Mondays and Wednesdays and Urban Meyer comes in and we talk to him, I'm very curious how he looks, how he seems. And and I think I said this earlier uh, on the, the postgame podcast. I thought Monday of last week he looked a little weathered, you know? And then on Wednesday I thought he looked peppy. Mm-hmm. So part of that is like sometimes it's like when we catch him in the day, what's he coming from? Some of us, we all know you have good days, you have bad days. Um, I would not say to me it has been a consistent day after day. Every time I see Urban Meyer, I don't think to myself, oh, man. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you think, oh, eh, he looks a, little, looks a little worn down. And then other times you think, man, he looks he looks like he did five years ago. So let's move on because, I, 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 I mean, you could do that forever. But I think, I think the thing that just worries me a little bit with some of that stuff when that talk comes up is when people speak about it. Authoritatively, mm-hmm. and in a way when you can't be authoritative, and you know, like you can, you don't know. And and I just I think it's okay to say you don't know. I think it's okay to say I wonder. But I think sometimes there's a tendency in our business uh, to to make bold declarations when really what's behind it is a guy's facial expression on the sideline. Sure. Uh, we haven't gotten to the. Email questions very much lately, and so I want to acknowledge our wonderful emailers to talkpod at gmail.com. Somebody asked this week, they said Bill had been in charge of the email account. Can I still send questions to the email account? And I know that I'm 45 and that my personal email is still AOL, but I know how to operate a Gmail. <laughs> now, I'm not great at it. But Landis gave me the password, and I figured it out, and I'm looking at the emails right now. So yes, you can still send email questions to at BuckeyeTalkPod at gmail.com. I'm going to shorten this a little bit. It's a very good question. From Steve Stitt, Doug, I know this may sound like blasphemy, but is it possible that this team would have been better with Joe Burrow at quarterback? And it's basically a question. It's a very thorough question. Uh, But it's a question about fit. He says, Haskins is absolutely great, but it appears he's not the right fit for Urban. It's like Urban just got a brand new Ferrari. It's fun as hell to drive on the wide open interstate between the 20s. Man, this is some good stuff. (laughs) But it's absolutely worthless in rush hour traffic, short yardage red zone. Urban has not found a way to adjust the rushing offense with Haskins at the helm. Um, Haskins does not get any blame from me this is a systemic issue should we have seen the writing on the wall with the results of the 2015 quarterback battle you settled on a fast pass first quarterback in Cardale the offense stinks and looks lost you revert back to JT because Urban doesn't know what else to do I'll hang up and listen that's a tremendous question Steve and I'll let Seth answer first would they be better off no blame on Dwayne but from a fixed standpoint, if Joe Burrow was here. Joe Burrow, quarterback of the number five, higher ranked than Ohio State, LSU Tigers.
0: I don't think they would be better off. I don't know for sure that Joe Burrow could come back against TCU and Penn State. That was A, a lot of that work was done with downfield passing, and I just don't know that I would trust Joe Burrow to do that. But again, I go back to the concerns. If you took me back to last February, and, and you know, winter workouts and spring practice is about to start, and you told me... The fear was can cuz in 2015 it was different. They didn't let Cardale be the quarterback he was in the playoff.
1: I thought they did a terrible job. I thought Ed Warner, Tim Beck and Urban did a terrible job of fitting the offense They ran to the Cardale. same
0: offense. Yep. They, it was it was still read option completely. Yep. And RPOs didn't really exist yet at right. that point. It wasn't quite, I mean maybe they did them and didn't know they were doing them. but so that, this is different. They have let Dwayne throw the ball. The problem has been we just assumed, and, and you took down the numbers. I don't even remember what you and Bill and Tim said about rushing years, maybe 1,000 each for uh, Dobbins mm-hmm. and Weber, um, and maybe they could still get to 1,000, but they're, they're not 1,800 or so. The, the, the problem is they haven't adapted the running game to be – they don't need to be a pro-style set, I don't think. But they need to have adapted that, and they didn't. So if you go back to February, should they have said, we don't want to adapt this offense, Urban won't adapt this offense, maybe we should give it to Joe Burrow. Now, knowing what I know now, I just don't think he would have led comebacks against TCU and Penn State. But It's hard because I think Joe Burrow is good. Mm-hmm. And... Joe Burrow, and we
1: said this all along, is is obviously much closer to JT. I think, I think Joe Burrow is pretty close to JT. Absolutely. And I think, and I, I, I can't remember, I'm going to do... Along the, among the things I want to do this week that I don't know if I'm going to get to is <laughs> I just want to do a list of like the 78 things I think about Ohio State football. Because I lose track of what I write, what I say in a podcast, what I say on the phone to somebody, what I say hanging out with other reporters, and I can't remember... If I've said this particularly, but I know I've said and written many times, last year JT Barrett was the best quarterback in Ohio State history and the second best quarterback on his own team. Mm -hmm. And I think I may have to amend that and say, last year, JT Barrett was the best quarterback in Ohio State history and the third best quarterback (laughs) on his own team. I don't know about that. Because when you see what Burrow is doing this year, and a lot of his stats I don't think are like, they're not as gaudy as Dwayne Mm -hmm. Haskins, but he's just like kind of winning in a lot of the ways that JT won. And I think maybe you could argue Burrow Burrow is, I think JT's the better runner, but Burrow runs pretty well. I think Burrow is probably maybe the better thrower, although JT threw well enough. Like, in a world where just, like, Dwayne Haskins wasn't here, mm-hmm. and Joe Burrow was your quarterback, I think the number one issue for this team, and it's not close, and I know the linebacker stuff drives people crazy, and I know there's a lot of stuff with the secondary, I think the number one thing is the red zone, and it's not close. And the red zone thing really hadn't popped up. Yeah. Until the last two weeks, mm-hmm. um, like at Penn State, they were one for two on touchdowns because they didn't get in the red zone that much. So it's a it's a recent thing. And early on, they were like seven of eight against Rutgers and and Oregon State because those guys stink. So their overall like red zone percentage isn't terrible. It's just so glaring against Minnesota and Purdue to have seven red zone trips and no touchdowns the last two weeks. And I guess I would say if Joe Burrow was the quarterback would they have zero touchdowns and seven red zone trips the last two weeks? You're probably right about that. So, now, I always thought all along, and I wrote it right after the spring game, Dwayne Haskins' arm, just it just ended the conversation. When you see, I think it was a particular throw that Dwayne made in the spring game that I said, that throw was it. Because that's the kind of throw that can beat Alabama. And so, I think sometimes the guy who gives you the better chance to beat Alabama also might be the guy who lessens your chances against Purdue. Mm -hmm. And I think Ohio State fans after the last four years were kind of tired of the guy who beats Purdue but gets shut out by Clemson. So I would say I don't think Dwayne Haskins, if they get to the playoff, is going to get shut out the way JT Barrett got shut out in 2016. But... On a tough night at Purdue, when you can't run the red zone stuff that you normally would run with the running quarterback, basically, I think there's a higher ceiling and a lower basement with Haskins. And after the last four years, Ohio State has to take that risk. They have to take that risk because what they were doing with a, with a zone read, quarter, dual threat quarterback, was leaving them a step short. I think against the best of the best, it's the same risk. It's the same risk that Nick Saban took at halftime of the national championship game. That's a risk that Ohio State's taking for a season. And that Clemson's taking with Trevor Lawrence. And this is not the only place this is happening. And when you do that, then there's a bump. Sometimes there's bumps. So I still think, 100% in my opinion, Haskins was the right call. But I understand the idea of, is it possible that Ohio State would be 8-0 and right now with Joe Burrow, yet a less of a legitimate national championship contender? And instead, they're seven and one with Dwayne Haskins. But if they get it fixed, I'm still convinced if they run the table and they're a 12 and one Big Ten champ, they're in the playoff. And this, when it's all working, is your best chance mm-hmm. to
0: win a national title. We'll take Joe Burrow out of it then. And you've asked this question multiple times, and I'm going to say a name you're going to love. Is Chris Leak Tim Tebow on the table now? Because now you've got Haskins, who's 10 times better than Chris Leak was as a quarterback. But you've got Haskins, and you've got this evidence in the last few weeks that 0 for seven in the red zone, that maybe we do need to go to Tate Martell. So I'm always happy to talk about Tate Martell. I know. So thank you for bringing that up, Bob. Um,
1: Dan Wise sent a question. We haven't seen Tate the last couple games. Um, basically, ask him why. So one of the reasons it's not because of the red shirt rule, because he red shirted last year, so he doesn't have a red shirt. They're, if they're not playing him, they're just not playing him because they don't think he can help them win. Um, I don't I did a list of five drastic changes that were on the table on Sunday morning after the loss. Tate Martell in the red zone was number 5 on purpose because I understand that's a bit fanciful. It's a bit of a magic bullet. It's not quite the same as a fundamental thing like get rid of RPOs and change the style of run plays you run or completely change the coverage scheme or completely change how you use a linebacker. Those are fundamental things. Tate is a is a choice on some plays here and there. So I said, I would not make Tate Martell the red zone quarterback. I would not make him the third and short quarterback. I was all for the Tate series. I would be all for the Tate series, make defenses plan for that and put him in for the fifth series of the game, just like they did the first two weeks. I'm all for that. But as a realistic red zone thing, I think he's a red zone wrinkle. What would you do? Would you, like, I don't... I think like okay, it's first and it's first and ten from the twelve. You run J.K. Dobbins on first down. He gets three.
0: Now it's second and seven from the nine, and here comes Tate. I, I just I'm I'm to the point now where I think again going back to the evidence we have that Urban won't change. I'm to the point where I think third and two and less. You you put Tate in there because running into the back of the line against Indiana and not getting first downs. That that's the evidence we have and. You know, I go back to the NFL for years. The NFL, if it was third and two or longer, it was a passing down no matter what. But we have not seen much evidence in, in this staff's ability or willingness to throw the ball on third and two. And, of course, we go back to JT in third and six or seven, he was running it. But also, you go to the, the Leak in Tebow or even JT on third and six or seven, you knew what it was happening, and nobody could stop it. And, and that's the thing when people say, like, well, if you bring if you bring Tate in the
1: game, they're gonna know what you're doing. Fine. Yeah. I mean, like 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 you just said, Ohio State often the other team knows what they're gonna do, but you execute it so well, it doesn't matter. So I think they would have a chance, and even if Tate's in the game, you know they're running zone read, but you don't know if it's going to Dobbins or if Kate's mm-hmm. if Tate's keeping it. You have that within the play, which is what they're missing now. So we've we've talked a lot a lot about Tate on this podcast and so let's boil this down right now for the Nebraska game into two questions you will give two answers and I'll give two answers first is should they use Tate Martell in the red zone second is
0: will they use Tate Martell in the red zone because of the evidence we have or the last I think even back to the Indiana game because of the evidence we have yes I think they should I can't say with 100%. He's smirking. He doesn't know what to say. (laughs) I can't say 100% that they will. I I just don't know.
1: I think they should, and I think they won't. Okay. I think they are going to decide their answer is something more like um, some two tight end packages and handed to Dobbins and Weber or something, an adjustment in the run plays they're trying but not Tate. I think they would decide, you know what, we do need to run it in the red zone, but what we're going to do, we believe in our tailbacks, and we're just going to give them the ball in a different way, and we don't think we need to get Tate in to do it. And part of me wonders if they think, like, I think it would be fine. I keep saying it's a wrinkle. It's not punitive. I've said that a million times. I don't know how Dwayne Haskins would react to being yanked out of a game on at the eleven yard line, after it's like he moved him seventy yards, and now he's out of the game. Even if he's only going to hand off on the play, I don't. And maybe that's part of it. They know. I'm not saying he would no, have a
0: problem, yeah. but maybe right. I don't know. Is that? Well, could, do you think some quarterbacks might have a problem with that? I think a lot of quarterbacks would. I remember Week One for the Ravens when when Lamar Jackson comes off the bench and they're trying this as a wrinkle, and um, Steve Berline or whoever it was in the in the booth says. Uh, that's Joe Flacco is not happy right now. Joe right. Flacco is standing as a wide receiver. He's not going to move and he is angry right now because this is his team. Yep. And he's not happy. So, to, like you get back to that idea too though. Dwayne Haskins is the closest thing to what we think. See, when you think of quarterback, what do you think of? I think of NFL throw the ball. Right, so yeah,
1: but it's, it's not
0: about what we think of. It's no, about what Urban Meyer. But I think, I think so. a lot of fans think that too, and that's why fans, I think, got upset with JT a lot because of throws he couldn't make, but he could do a lot of other things that helped you win games. Your point's valid, and I'm taking us off track yeah, a little, but, but 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 quarterback means going back to me being a kid means Joe Montana, Boomer Esiason, those guys, Bernie Kosar. They can throw the ball, and in college, it doesn't mean that.
1: Hey guys, a quick word from our other loyal sponsor here at Buckeye Talk, our friends at MinutemanTickets.com. I know what you're thinking. You're frustrated with the Buckeyes right now, but they're going in the bye week. They're off and they're coming back with the noon home date against Nebraska. There are only two home games left this season. It's Nebraska and it's Michigan. Now Michigan's going to cost you a pretty penny. So we've been talking all year about... Making sure you see Dwayne Haskins throw the ball in Ohio Stadium. Minuteman Tickets can help you do that. If you want to get in and see the Buckeyes, if you haven't seen them yet, sometimes after these big losses, this is a good time to try to get in Ohio Stadium because some people maybe won't want to be there. Maybe this is your chance to get there if you haven't gone to a game in a while. MinuteMantickets.com, I'm looking right now. they got tickets all over the place. Groups of two. They got some single tickets if you want to go in. Um, You you have a lot of different price levels. And here's the thing about Minuteman Tickets. If you want awesome seats, they've got them for you. If you want a little more affordable, if you want to just get in the stadium and not pay that much, they've got them for you. They have a million different seats in the middle, right, in between in that area. They can get you in one seat, two seats, four, six, whatever you need. Go to minutemantickets.com. You go in, you find Ohio State versus Nebraska. They have all the sections um, that you can tell right away where there are seats available. You pick the section you want. It's easy. Minuteman Tickets, they back it up. Not that anything's going to go wrong, but sometimes if you're nervous about online stuff, Minuteman Tickets is a place you can trust if you have any problems. They'll back it up. They have the national selection with the local touch. They're based in Columbus. If you want tickets to anything else, Browns, Bengals, Cavs, Anything going on in Ohio or around the country, sports, concerts, theater, minutemantickets.com is your place. They're our ticket guys. Make them your ticket guys. Question from John Potak, who's our friend J.P. Porkchop and Elizabeth Alexander at Shining News Girl. Um, This is an email question from Porkchop. During the loss of Purdue, my friend Liz and I had an interesting conversation about the current makeup of Ohio State's offense, their staff, and past players. Two fundamental questions. Here's the first one. Who do you think would be more effective with Dwayne Haskins as their starting quarterback, Urban Meyer or Jim Trestle? I say Jim Trestle. You just drop him back, hand off like in a power run game to to your tailback, run a little play
0: action. Look, in, yep. in 2004 and five, when Troy Smith played, he was a running quarterback who could throw, because he had a good arm. Yep. In 2006, when Jim Tressel had assembled all the weapons he needed, he, Troy Smith hardly ever ran, and he won the Heisman because of it, I think. And that was the one year, and you've talked about it before that was the one year we had we the Ohio State football team had the, the ability under Jim Tressel to just go all out. Yep, and you know with Craig Krenzel at quarterback, and and even with Terrell Pryor for a different reason, he didn't have that luxury. And so for 2006, he had that ability. Um, so if you put the the players that currently are on the team with Dwayne Haskins at quarterback, because I just don't, I think I think Jim Trestle was more willing to change, and he not not philosophy of like you know the punts most important thing of the game that still is there, but. But we're just seeing evidence. I'm worried. I'm still worried that, that Coach Meyer just doesn't, doesn't want to change, especially the way he runs the ball.
1: So Jim Trestle had Troy Smith, who as you said in 2004 and 2005 was, was definitely a dual threat. Run first, throw second. And by 2006 he was so confident. Um, he was a, a pure quarterback who could run when he needed to. And then in 2007, after, Troy, after three years of Troy Smith, They put in Todd Beckman, who couldn't run from here to the door. No. Todd Beckman that year had uh, 56 carries for 63 yards. (laughs) That's a 1.1-yard average. And they made the national championship game with Todd Beckman, standing back there and throwing.
0: And after the Penn State game, Lee Corso, and everybody had him as the Heisman. I I always say
1: I legitimately asked Todd Beckman, a Heisman Trophy candidate, in my life. And, uh, and nobody laughed No. So that's what we're talking about That was after he played the game of his life At Penn State that year um, Yeah I mean I guess you'd rather give Dwayne Haskins To Jim Tressel, But I'm not giving up on Urban Meyer Figuring this out The, the amazing
0: not. thing is That Jim Tressel was more of a traditional Pro style type coach Who would kind of be more malleable but it was Urban Meyer's system that beat him in 06. So that, there's a it's so intertwined. It's it's an interesting question that Porkchop has, has posed there. Um, it is, and someone
1: now we have uh, Will Bates is asking um, about. It's another the Tressel's name is coming up again. This happens sometimes. It's like when when people love Tressel, and then um, kind of at the end of Tressel, people had some questions about even before any of the scandal stuff. I think people were were wondering about recruiting a little bit. Uh, they were wondering about sort of a stale offense. Um, people were wondering about Jim Bowman mm-hmm. and Doc Tressel and and Jim Haycock and that staff was that staff as fresh and as innovative as they needed to be in the modern college football world. Um and basically I think I think what Urban Meyer at Florida did to Ohio State in 2006 open some people's eyes of like, man, like, look at what's out there. Why are we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? I, I can't remember how many times I asked Jim Trestle about, uh, would you hire an offensive coordinator? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, what would I do? Sit around and eat bonbons like this? <laughs> You know, you long for the old days when something in the new days goes wrong. But I'll tell you, back in the old days, a lot of people wanted something new.
0: Right. And back then, too, you looked at the Florida at that point and Oklahoma and USC. They had backups. Oklahoma replaced Sam Bradford with, at quarterback and still had great seasons. Yeah. When Beanie Wells got hurt, it was over. I mean, Jim Trestle did a great job recruiting the front-line players. And we just didn't. Ohio State just didn't have the depth. Now you look at it now, Urban gets the players.
1: But, yeah.
0: But the other question is, it's the same question, though, because the reliance on his system, even though he has offense coordinators by name, the questions still come up now when there's failures. Urban's reluctant to change. It's very similar to the end of the Trestle era, with the exception of the talent.
1: Yeah. So here's Will Bates' question, basically. Um, He's talking about Trestle's teams getting better. And again, I mean, I just wrote a whole story about like the 2009 Purdue game when mm-hmm. Ohio State under Jim Tressel went and lost to Purdue in the middle of the year. So again, I get what you're saying, but I, I always thought the thing with Trestle's teams were um, they almost never lost. the. You can count the upsets on one hand because sure. they, they stick out because they were so rare. They almost never lost the game they were supposed to win. But then when they got – I always said when they got to equal talent, when they got to equal talent games, did they have the innovation to get them over the top? And that's what we're talking about with the bowl losses, um, basically the bowl losses. Like when, you, when they lose to Florida in 06 and LSU in 07 and Texas in the Fiesta Bowl in 08 and people are saying like, do we have the innovation? They beat, they beat Oregon then they beat Arkansas. But um, here's, here's an interesting question that Will asks. Trestle was very loyal vets to veteran players, but when guys underperformed, he gave opportunities to their backups. 2004 is a good example. Troy Smith is the most obvious example, but um, TJ Downing got to start that year. Anthony Schlegel got to start that year. Antonio Pittman beat out Lydell Ross by the end of the year. Will is listing these opportunities Mm -hmm. where Trestle went with the best guy, and he was I don't think I'm afraid to use this word. He was ruthless in benching Todd Beckman and starting Terrell Pryor. Absolutely. Absolutely ruthless. And he said, and I wrote about this the other day, the last a couple of weeks ago, when Kelly Bryant left Clemson, in 2007 or in 2008, after Todd Beckman had led them to the national title game in 07, Todd Beckman's a captain in 08. Back then for the postgame news conference, they made each captain make an opening statement. Todd Beckman would come in. Mm -hmm. He did not play a second of the game. And they'd make him come in and make a captain statement. And he did it every time. But he was ruthless because he thought Terrell Pryor was the best chance for them to win. So the question is, and this is the guys that I've been talking about. Bill's asking, what about Wyatt Davis? What about Josh Myers? What about looking—I've been waiting. Josh Proctor, true freshman safety, got in the game for one play last week. And I was like, ooh, Josh Proctor. Now, Isaiah Isaiah Pryor is young. Isaiah Pryor is is only a second-year player. So do you think—but this goes back a little bit. It's like, I don't think Trussell would have benched JT Barrett for Dwayne Haskins last year. Because even though he benched Beckman for Pryor— Haskins wasn't quite prior, and certainly Beckman wasn't Barrett, so the Barrett-Haskins thing was more complicated. But do you believe that Trestle was more open to playing the best guy if that meant benching veterans, And, and or do you possibly believe Urban is too loyal to veterans and maybe will not make a move to someone like Josh Myers or Wyatt Davis this week, even though the performance of the interior line might say, try it?
0: I think the loyalty card is a football coach thing. It's not limited to Urban Meyer or even even the, the Jim Trestle teams. The defense rarely did that. What you're what you're saying, Jim did. Jim Tressel did. And, and you look at Beckman. Beckman after that Penn State game, the, the Illinois game, the Michigan game, the the bowl game against LSU was a complete slide. And then he laid the against USC. So he had he had a four or five game stretch where something needed to happen. But I think loyalty as a whole. That's why when when. When Nick Saban put Tua in at halftime last year, it was such big, such a big deal. Yeah. Because football coaches preach and coach loyalty, and I have a friend who always says they're all in scholarship. Be loyal to all of them because they're all in scholarship. But Urban didn't re- resist this back when he came in twelve and thirteen. Did Storm Klein play much after? Right. He sh- I mean, we moved. He moved born from line from fullback to linebacker and, and fixed yep. it. Uh, Urban was not afraid to do that when it seemed like Luke Fickle, a holdover from the previous staff, didn't want to bench Storm Klein. Right. Um, so, and, and also, I guess, that's a fresh, Urban was a fresh pair of eyes, and, and he was willing to do that then, and now maybe his loyalty is to guys that he's brought along. But, but I, it's, it's, a, it's a complaint I hear often about not playing enough guys. But I will say they've played five or six or seven linebackers every week. And the linebacking play still isn't very good. Well,
1: and, and the hard thing is, I think most of the time when people are talking about this, and again, like Will was talking about in the question, is the idea of do you bench the veteran for the young guy, right? Mm-hmm. Well, like they already did that. People thought Keandre Jones right. was going to start this year as a third-year player. He had sort of waited for two years, done everything you would expect a guy to do on special teams, and he was the next in line. And Pete Warner beat him out. Pete Werner as a year two guy. So they're already playing Pete Werner young. Malik Harrison young. Baron Browning young. Tough Borland is only a redshirt sophomore. Mm -hmm. They're already, and the guys behind them are Keandre Jones, who's older, Dante Booker, who's like the only senior on the whole defense, Justin Hilliard, who's older. They're already playing the young guys instead of the veterans. They've already made that move. and and decided upon performance over loyalty. But now the questions are, well, are those guys good enough? And I just don't think that, and I said it a million times, in a place like Ohio State, true freshmen shouldn't play unless they're Orlando Pace. It's just not what you do. If you're doing that, there's a sign that something went wrong in recruiting and the class is above them. So if you think, like, you want to play Tarotta Mitchell at mm-hmm. linebacker as a true freshman, or you want, to, you want to put in somebody else who just got here, even Josh Proctor, whose name I brought up, that is, that is quite a desperate move, I think, which is why I thought starting Michael Jordan three years ago on the offensive line was a desperate move as a true freshman, and it was. Urban Meyer later admitted that. It's because they had mistakes in recruiting ahead of him. So I just—I understand the question— but I, w- I would point people to some of these things that, you know, Pete Warner playing, that's already a sign that they feel like they are going to play the best guy no matter how old they are. Well, they,
0: they didn't just blanketly say Sheffield and Arnett are starting corners. They're, they're, right. Okuda's been just as big a factor as those guys and the And Wade, too, I – you know, you can go back. Trestle didn't put Beanie Wells ahead of Antonio Pittman when he was a freshman, even though everybody knew that Beanie was a better overall player. Right. Pittman left early almost knowing he probably wasn't going to play in the NFL because he knew that Beanie right. Wells was going to be the guy. I mean, you could bring guys on both sides of this argument to, say, to give examples of times when Coach Tressel or Coach Meyer played the younger guy first.
1: Andrew Patterson email question. I know this is blasphemy, and I believe Haskins is the best thing to happen to Ohio State in years. But it are part of the red zone issues, at least against Purdue, that he was not accurate enough? I say this realizing the number one red zone issue is the run game. However, if the team is basically going to be the Dwayne show, then Haskins has to be near perfect in all aspects. And against Purdue, he wasn't. And he points to a couple of the passes in the red zone. Um, he underthrew Ben Victor on a fade. And then I thought—and then there were— uh, the two obvious ones. And I asked Dwayne directly about that after the game. It was the pass to Terry McLaurin and the pass to Ben Victor on very similar out routes where it felt like they made their break. They had a step on the defender. The defender was kind of boxed out behind them. They were open on the sideline. And I thought both times Dwayne threw it late and gave the defender a chance to get back into play. And he did say after the game that he felt he should have thrown it a little harder. And maybe if he wouldn't have lofted it as much, the defender wouldn't have had a chance to get into play. Is that fair, Seth? Is that fair that Dwayne Haskins? The expectation is almost perfection in terms of he's got to put it right on a guy's hands every time for this team to succeed.
0: It's not fair because you're talking about seven trips to the red zone, and you're you're bringing up two of the maybe only two passes that he they actually drew up to throw it into the end zone from the line of scrimmage. Yep. So. NFL quarterbacks all the time, the fade's hard to convert. The fade is very hard. The NFL fans hate the fade because it's such a low completion. But when you have a Ben Victor that's so tall, you think, well, we've got a chance. Well, he missed on these two throws, but they were down there seven times. You're allowed to throw the ball in the end zone. Right. And so seven times three is at least 21 plays in the, in the red zone. They went for it on fourth down once, 22 plays minimum. And they only threw it in the end zone twice. Yeah,
1: I mean it's it's um, I don't love the throws they're trying in the red mm-hmm. zone. I even thought the KJ Hill thing. I think I think someone might have mentioned it's like an NFL play. Kate, who said it? I think Terry McLaurin might have said it. That they kind of they had three receivers on that side. They motioned KJ in behind two of them and tried to throw him a little quick pass and have two blockers right there, almost like mm-hmm. a having those guys pick the other defenders. And Dwayne, I, it's like it was weird. It felt like. K.J. didn't get his hands up in time or that Dwayne threw it too hard for that moment. But that's a fourth and two. It's a do-or-die play. And I think I said this before on the podcast. It makes me feel like Woody Hayes. (laughs) That when you throw the ball, three things can happen and two of them are bad. Because here's the idea. You have one of the three leading passers in the nation throwing a two-yard pass to a guy with great hands. Everybody, we always say, K.J. Hill has the best hands on the team. You have a great quarterback you believe in and a great receiver you believe in who who have done it exactly right time and time again. And it doesn't work. And he throws it too hard and his hands don't get up and it bounces off of him and it doesn't come close to working. And you think, what are they doing? And it turns out what they're doing is relying on like maybe the two steadiest parts of that offense right now are Dwayne Haskins and KJ Hill. That's it. And it still didn't work, which is similar to you could hand it to JK Dobbins behind an all Big Ten offensive line, and every now and then he's going to get stuffed. And you're going to say, What are you doing? And you say, Look, we believe in our line, we believe in our tailback, we didn't make it. We believe in our quarterback, we believe in our receiver, we didn't make it. But I think you can. It's easier to second guess because a run just seems easier.
0: Hand the ball to the guy, get a hole, fall forward. But that's you get back to that, Doug. And that's the problem. They're not able to run the ball. They're not I mean, able to. When, run. when the field is getting compressed, they're not running the ball, and so it highlights those fade passes that aren't a good percentage anyway. Right. It highlights the KJ Hill, the maybe one or two times ever that they don't hook up correctly. I mean, the Penn State winning touchdown. Was a screen pass, and I don't know that, that. I think that was just outside the red zone. But it was a screen pass that two receivers blocked five different guys perfectly, right. and it worked for a touchdown. You can't expect those short yardage plays, the passes, to end up being touchdowns every time. So you've got to run the ball better. You've got to th- use the entire end zone. Quit using just the le- back left part of the end zone for a fade every time. You can do that some of the time, and it's going to work some of the time. But they're not, they're not doing enough of everything well. And it
1: just it, they don't have anything easy. Mm-hmm. There's nothing easy. That it should be easy to get two yards. And you know what? Like, if they call that play and KJ Hill was open, then it is going to look easy. Because you believe in Dwayne and you believe in KJ and it looked easy. But what looks really easy is a two-yard run behind a line that can pound it. And they don't have that right now. So I guess the – and here's the thing. And this is, I think, the overarching question for a lot of this, Seth, is the idea of – They've got to change, right? They've got to change. But is their offensive line good enough? Is it just scheme? Is it just they're not running the ball enough? They're doing too many RPOs. The line's confused. If you give these five guys the chance to say,
0: we're going to lean on the defensive line and just kick their butts, can they do it? Something's wrong with the scheme. But were you – I don't know where you were in the stadium when they had Jalen Harris in the game. It was after Mack went out. And and they almost got a delay of game because they had to rush McLaurin onto the field to get – Get Jalen Harris out because he needs to block downfield. Terry had to block him. He's got a block, and my I was with my college roommate over in Dayton. We, I watched the game with him, and he's like, "What is he doing?" I was like, "He doesn't trust Jalen Harris to yeah. block this play. They're going to run a screen to KJ Hill or someone like that." And, and they background. almost risked a delay of game just to get the guy, the blocker, the designated yeah. blocker on the field. They just need they need some
1: stuff that they. I I don't like the, like the identity discussion. I think it's overused by sports writers a lot, but they just don't I don't think they have a lot of stuff that they know is going to work, mm-hmm. you know. Jane or Jason Kraft, Jason Kraft. When will they stop? This is a good chance to dig into this. When will they stop putting the linebackers up on the line where they get blocked so easily on run plays? I get that they want to help the defensive line out, but it seems like it prevents them from making plays. And I think James Laurinaitis has talked about that this week. Chris Spielman has talked about that this week. This is not just two sports writers in a library conference room talking (laughs) about this. This is something that I think has gnawed at guys who know the position very well. And someone, and I can't remember who it was, sent a tweet out um, this week to me and a couple other people. And it was a tweet of Baron Browning making a play, of Baron Browning being back not being up at the line, being in your typical middle linebacker position, diagnosing and making a great tackle. And it was like, look, this is what happens when you let these guys do this. I think Greg Schiano and we've asked him about it it's the idea that the linebackers first job is to stop the run they want them up in the gaps to help the defensive line if you take the run away then you rely on your corners guys who are locked in man to man coverage you know you're putting them on an island but you're not as worried about the linebackers being in passing lanes and all that because you believe in the pass in the coverage of your secondary guys but I think the second part of that is is I'm not even sure that like putting them up at the line to stop the run is the best way to stop the run It feels like they're winding up in the wrong gaps a lot of times. It feels like they're being forced into things. I keep saying they're caught in between. They are not doing the thing. And I always say, as I like to preface everything in the podcast by saying, I don't know anything about football, but I always in my head when I think James Laurinaitis, when I think his name, Mm -hmm. all I think about is him being whatever it is, five, seven yards, whatever, from the line of scrimmage in the middle of that defense and diagnosing – and making a play, and I know a lot of times, sometimes even when Laurinaitis was as good as he was, people by his senior year, when you're nitpicking things, you're saying, "Oh, he wasn't blowing people up like Andy Katzenmoyer did. He wasn't making enough big plays because, like, stopping guys for a three-yard gain every single time wasn't good enough. <laughs> How much would you take that now? Linebackers who stop guys for three-yard runs, and I think there's whatever it is, and I blame Bill Davis for everything. I blame Bill Davis for climate change. But this is Greg Schiano's defense. Bill Davis is not deciding how to play the linebackers in the scheme. I think Bill Davis is doing a poor job coaching the linebackers during the week, fundamentally, to make them as good as they can be. But this is Greg Schiano's scheme. And this is Greg Schiano hell-bent on those linebackers being up in those gaps. And that, of all the things, of all the things that I think could change and should change,
0: I think that's the number one thing that's going to change. Okay. I wish I could ask a football guy this question, and maybe I'll oh, help sometime. Oh,
1: great. Oh, thanks a lot, Shanerbomb. Right to my <laughs> face. You but admit you don't think of me as a football guy. This is my fourth season.
0: <laughs> what's on my shirt? Tell the people what's on my shirt. It's a dog looking at a football, and does it say James Thurber? It does say James That's Thurber. That's pretty cool. A football
1: on my shirt. You I are tried a
0: football guy. Okay, football guy. Just to prove
1: to you, Shanerbomb. If, if the defensive line me. is
0: so good, why do the linebackers need to be up there? Because
1: the defensive line isn't that good. Okay. Right. Um, Draymond's really good. I think they've had an issue at the second tackle spot Because all of Landers year. being hurt. Most Landers of the has time. been hurt. Landers is basically a second teamer now. Davon Hamilton's the other tackle right now. Um, I think Cooper's fine. Yeah. I don't know that he's any more than fine. And all of a sudden, you know, you go from Nick Bosa, Chase Young, Draymond Jones. You take you take Bosa out of that. I think Chase Young, and I've said this and written this a million times, I think he's wearing down a little bit. They're asking a lot out of him as a first-time starter. Um, I think Draymond hasn't been himself because he's kind of had like a nagging foot mm-hmm. thing. And I think I think perhaps they're overcompensating. Um, and part of it is, and I, and I had someone explain this to me. I think back in the day when Jim Tressel was a coach and the defenses they ran – a lot of times, uh, back then, people always complained about they didn't have any playmaking defensive tackles. And back then, the design of the defense was for the, the defensive tackles just to take, eat up Space. offensive linemen, and keep the linebackers free mm-hmm. to make plays. Um, right now, this the scheme of this defense is asking the defensive tackles to make plays on their own. They are not satisfied with defensive tackles eating up two blocks to free up linebackers. So when you're you're putting the playmaking on the tackles if the tackles don't make the play there are more linebackers there are more blockers available to block linebackers than what you saw a decade ago and so i think at times if the defensive tackles are not getting in the backfield and penetrating and and hitting a running back at the handoff then all of a sudden Boom, the outside linebacker's blocked, the middle linebacker's blocked, and there's a guy running free 12 yards down the field. And we've seen that more often than you would like to see it. Part of it, I think, is that is what they're asking people to do. Part of it is I think the linebacker play is a step down talent-wise from where it's been. A lot of it, I think, is bad coaching by Bill Davis. But again, I think it's a combination. That's the worst of both worlds. But I think backing them off is a start. And I think they'll do
0: it. Because they can run forward. I mean, the the loss of Nick Bosa feels a lot to me like a, a great bullpen that loses their closer. Maybe that eighth inning guy is not a good closer. So you've moved everybody up a notch, and they just don't get the job done. They're still good pitchers, but they don't get the job done. Chase Young looks superhuman with Nick Bosa across from him. And Jonathan yeah. Cooper looked pretty good with Nick Bosa across from yeah. him. So I don't know.
1: Um... Let's see, going. So there are a lot of good email questions. We're going to go back to some of the Twitter questions. Jordan Alexis at JAA951. And we're going to get kicked out of the library soon. Why does Urban value a coach's ability to recruit so much more compared to their actual ability to coach? At Ohio State, you'll get recruits, but when proving you can develop talent, drawn kids more. That's what helped makes Larry Johnson so great and Kerry Combs so great. Um... Talent wins.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Talent wins, talent wins, talent wins. Even at a place like Ohio State, they're recruiting at a higher level than Ohio State was before. You're always going to win the battles in Ohio. But if you're going to win battles in Texas and to get J.K. Dobbins and Baron Browning and Jeffrey Okuda, um, if you're going to win battles in Georgia for Raquan McMillan, if you're going to win battles for Vaughn Bell, and you're going to win battles around the country— Um, you need to prioritize recruiting and so i think it's a reasonable thing he's done and you know what a lot of you guys really liked it when they're piling up top one top two classes um i think it's a trade-off and i wrote a big thing about the coaches i think he has hired too many people that he knows but i also i just feel like they're out of balance a little bit i think they're out of balance they're out of whack i just think um just like with a roster you want balance to your roster. I think you want balance to your coaching staff. And so um, they miss Kerry Combs. I think they miss Luke Fickle. I think they miss Ed Warner. Ed Warner was not a great recruiter. And it's a bad combo. Here's what I think happened on the offensive line. And I think there were some issues on the offensive line right now. Ed Warner Especially his last year or two had some kind of big misses in recruiting. And I, I, I'm not going to run through them right now, but they had a year, I think they might, I think they, in two straight years, I think they might have brought in nine offensive linemen combined. I'm not sure any of them are playing. I think those are guys who should be like fifth year and fourth year guys right now. Um, and But I think Warner was a better line coach than Studrawa. He was not as good of a recruiter. Mm-hmm. So the result is, You now have Ed Warner's recruiting misses being coached by a guy who's not as good as Warner. So maybe in the past, if Warner missed, but then he coached up somebody else, it all worked out. When he misses and now they're not getting coached up to the same level, you wind up in a situation where I'm not sure that anybody thought that the interior of this Offensive line would be Malcolm Priggen, Michael Jordan out of position, and Demetrius Knox. Um, Isaiah Prince was a big time recruit. He didn't. He's had some a rough couple games. They're they're not making a move there. They're not going to start a true freshman instead of Isaiah Prince. I think Thayer Munford is fine. But again, the idea of our left tackle is a true sophomore who never played the position before this year because last year he was a backup right tackle. Is that the ideal situation at Ohio State? That your left tackle is a second-year player who's never played it. There's probably somebody in one of those recruiting classes, Kevin Feeder's at Kansas, or Grant Schmitz at South Dakota State. There's somebody in some of those missed, um, the, some of those misses in those classes who maybe should be the left tackle instead right now. And then Thayer Munford would be like Jamarco Jones, who sat two years. Jamarco Jones didn't play for his first two years because Taylor Decker was there. And then he, he was completely ready to play as a junior and a senior. I'm not saying Thayer Munford's been bad. I'm saying maybe in an ideal world, Thayer Munford's Jamarco Jones, which is not playing.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: except Thayer Munford doesn't have a Taylor Decker. And that means this offensive line doesn't have a Taylor Becker, Decker. And it's not only the difference of guys not getting it done. It's the difference between having good players and great players. And I don't think anybody – they do not have a great player on this offensive line right now. And they have had great players in at least one of those offensive line spots basically every year since Meyer's been here, whether it's been Jack Muhort or Taylor Decker or Pat Alflane or Billy Price. And I don't think they had that guy because I think Jordan might be that guy. And I think he's that guy at guard. I don't think he's that guy at center.
0: But to your point, would Jordan have played tackle if he didn't have to start at guard as a freshman? Well, it's a great... He should never have had to start at guard. He had to. True I, I, and it changed his
1: whole right. career, possibly. So why do they value the recruiting? Because recruiting, matter, recruiting matters the most. And I know that Ohio State, yes, Ohio State's going to recruit at a certain level. They've recruited at a higher level under Urban Meyer because of what he values. And when, you know, when Tom Herman left, he said, we've got to get a guy to recruit Texas. That's why they got Tim Beck here, and Tim Beck sucked. So it doesn't mean it's always the right thing, but I'm trying to tell you maybe that's why they go that
0: way. But, it, but if you always go get four and five stars, and like you said, nobody's complaining when they get them, you're not getting your Tyus Powell's or your Darren Lees and guys like that. who I mean, I guess you call them glue guys or chemistry guys or guys that just fit because they're ready to play when their number's called. Yep. And maybe you're not getting those guys. Malik Harrison's kind of that guy.
1: Yeah, you know I mean? Right. I'm always – and people – Get tired of me doing it. I'm always pounding the table for, like, save a spot for the three-star Ohio kid because they've had a lot of success with those guys. This is a good question. We need to get to this. At Joe underscore OSU, what do you think of the Austin Mack injury? And what are they going to do? So Austin Mack is out for at least the rest of the regular season. Um, uh, Foot surgery on his left foot. Um, and just a quick breakdown, and, and, and I wrote about this. You can find this story at cleveland.com. Urban Meyer had an eight-minute conference call today. It's all we're going to get of him this week. The answers are very short and disjointed. There's people calling in from all over the country. You don't get to have a, a thorough discussion. So he was asked about Austin Mack, but he was not asked about how they're going to replace Austin Mac. So just so you guys know, Johnny Dixon and Terry McLaurin play one receiver spot. Paris Campbell and K.J. Hill play the H-back spot. And Ben Victor and Austin Mack play the other receiver spot. So Ben Victor is now the number one guy at that other receiver spot. McLaurin and Dixon play a different receiver spot. X and Z. I can never keep them straight. (laughs) You could go to like Ben Victor. You put Jalen Harris in Austin Mack's spot. And now you rotate with six guys the same way you've always done. But at one spot you're rotating Ben Victor and Jalen Harris. I think these veteran guys, you would have the ability to lean on them a little bit more. I think maybe I wouldn't just do that. I was very interested in the offseason and KJ Hill playing outside a little bit. To me, a world where you play KJ Hill outside to help replace Austin Mack, where you bring McLaurin or Dixon over to that side sometimes. So maybe there are situations where the three receivers on the field are Paris Campbell at H and Dixon and Hill outside or Dixon and McLaurin outside, and that you're not just putting Jalen Harris, who has barely played, into that knack spot. They have the bye week. I would experiment with that. I don't know how difficult that is to do, but to me, I'm a believer in Jalen Harris. He hasn't had a chance to do it yet. I think he is going to do it next year when a lot of these guys leave. I would hope they would get a little creative with that solution rather than just plug in next man up because I think they can do better than trying to have a spot where you're splitting a whole game. Because Ben Victor, of the six guys who play, Ben Victor's six Mm -hmm. to me. Now, he's made some spectacular individual plays, play in, play out, every down, catches, blocking, everything you need to do. I think he's not quite to the level of the other guys. To me, the idea that now you're splitting a whole game's worth of reps between Ben Victor and Jalen Harris, while... Paris Campbell, K.J. Hill, Johnny Dixon, and Terry McLaurin are splitting these other reps. Right. I, that's not, to me, the best thing you can do, but requi- it requires an adjustment. It does. I, have you seen Campbell and Hill on this field together? Don't get me started. They used to do it last year. They would play the double-H look at times. This year, when they put in a fourth receiver, it's always C.J. Saunders. Exactly. They never... I don't think they've played a single snap this year with Hill and Campbell together. Those are their two best playmakers. They are never on the field together. I don't know why they got away from it. We're supposedly going to get Ryan Day on Wednesday. I'm going to ask Ryan Day about it. And it's one of those where, like, when you have veteran receivers, they can figure it out. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't accept, well, that's the position. Sean Wade's playing three positions. You're not telling me that K.J. Hill can't play two or Paris Campbell can't play two or Terry McLaurin can't play two? I think they need to get creative with solutions here because, to me, and this isn't against C.J. Saunders, but when they go actual four wide, I refuse to believe that C.J. Saunders is one of their four best playmakers in that situation. It's not about him. It's about the guys ahead of him. And I'd rather have K.J. Hill on the field with Paris Campbell instead of C.J. Saunders on the field with Paris Campbell. That was a tangent. I started the show.
0: That's fine. But what would you do? Are you okay with putting No, I, I think if, if you've got now five guys for three spots, you, you really just I, – I, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you on that one. I'm not going to disagree because you're right. Victor's not the best blocker either, and I know how important I think that is. So to, to say that Victor gets to be out there all the time just because the guy that he was trading off with isn't there anymore, that doesn't make sense either.
1: Okay, we're going to end it with this one. This has been a freaking – I've screwed this up. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Shayner is out. Shanerbaum is like, I'm never going to listen to this freaking podcast again. I'm on it. And he'll listen to this one because there is no greater joy in life than listening to your own voice coming out of the radio. It is quite an ego trip. And I go down on I I trip that each week, multiple times. Dougie driving through Columbus, listening to Dougie. It's quite a sight to see. But this has been such a cluster. This is the Purdue game. This podcast is the Purdue podcast, and it's not about you. You've done your job. I have caused us to lose by 29 points on this (laughs) podcast, so I apologize to everyone, Um, but we did the best we could. The producer will save it in editing, though. Yeah. Hey, uh, can you fix this? Okay, I'll fix it in editing. Okay, uh, library announcement. Jordan (laughs) Steele. The Jordan Steele always asks good questions. If this team could magically fix one thing only. One thing only going forward, what would it be? Defense, run game, or injuries. I consider the red zone issues an extension of the run game problems, which I agree with. Um, I will say, it's like, so like the Nick Bosa injury is like gigantic. But he's gone. Mm -hmm. So if you could undo the Nick Bosa injury, I'd vote injuries. But I thought Urban, and I said this in the postgame podcast, Urban was like, we got to get healthy in the secondary. It's like, it's just Damon Arnett. I don't know what... Uh, i don't know i don't know what he was grasping for there, but it's not like they're down ten guys um, so if you could magically put a healthy Nick Bosa back on that on this team i'd take that short of that, yeah, which would you pick defense run game, or the other
0: injuries? short of that, I would fix the run game if the run game works, as you said the the red zone kind of takes care of itself a little bit and I think it was your post game podcast that talked about they. It could have been whatever it was. Tw- it could have been 28, 21 Buckeyes at halftime. Yeah. Or a certain point in the game. It, it it really could have been. And so, if you just score on four of the seven red zone trips, the game is it, it's a it's a shootout that you don't want to see against Purdue. Yeah. But it's a night game at Purdue. You've got the 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 cancer person in the stands that the ESPN was was interviewing during the game, and I I just think the run game is the answer, especially right now. Now, that might not beat Alabama if you get to play Alabama. Right. You might need Nick Bosa. You might rather have Nick Bosa against Alabama. But right now, the position they're in, run game all the way. The defense is the defense.
1: And and I've I've sort of said that all year, and and I'll agree with that because – I just do think people have to get their head around the, the new era of college football. It's not just college football, it's everywhere. I mean, the NFL, I mean, everybody, everybody scores, everybody puts up points. The yardage was equal last week. And I've, I'm not to repeat myself, but if you missed the postgame podcast, the yardage was equal. The turnovers were basically equal. The punts were basically equal. The difference in the game was the red zone. Purdue was three for three on touchdowns in the red zone, Ohio State was over four.
0: They scored 20 points with over 500 yards of offense. So that, I mean, it's not, it's,
1: and it's almost one of those, well, then why is the run game such a big deal after they're moving the ball up and down the field? I mean, it's because, as Jordan says in the question, the red zone problems are an extension of the run game problems. So I I think, I don't think that defense lost him the game. I mean, there's a lot of things you can fix on the defense, but Rondell Moore is going to smoke a lot of people, and he has smoked a lot of people. Um... And I said there's nothing, you know, if you could magically put Joey Bosa, Malik Hooker, and Marshawn Lattimore back on this team, great. But, but I don't think that this is a defense, like I don't know that it's not going to ever be as good as Michigan's defense or something. But also I don't think Michigan's offense, top end, is as good as Ohio State's offense. So I think that's going to be a really good game. But I think it's about the run game. I think it's about the run game that if you can just think when we move it, it's going to end with seven and have a belief in that. That just changes everything. And, again, if you think they have short yardage problems, that's run game. If you think that everything goes back to the run game because their yardage, their overall yardage is fine, you know, but it's about the idea that they can't, they can't cash in when they need to, and that goes back to the run game. And I will tell you, I think it is fixable.
0: Well, in the run game, if, the, if you think Dwayne Haskins looks good now, wait till, if if it is fixable, wait until the run game performs well. Because that opens up a lot more even for Dwayne Haskins at that point.
1: And I know it. And again, I think teams are playing them that way. To try to take away the run game and let Dwayne Haskins go crazy. I think that's a strategy. Mm -hmm. But I also will be very curious to see when it happens. Are we going to get a game where Dwayne Haskins throws for 246 yards... But they run for 250, and that offense actually looks better than when Dwayne Haskins
0: throws for 450. But is it a strategy because opposing coaches know Urban Meyer's going to run the ball on third and two and third and three? Does that make yeah. sense? Does that well, make sense? Because he talked about it two games ago. If if they're crowding the line, then he says we got to figure out how to run it. And then somebody in the in the press corps said, "Well, why can't you pass it on third and two? Well, maybe we need to look at that. Right, but. Is what he said, and they have
1: thrown a decent amount on third and two. And again, a lot of the short yardage stuff. I was, and when I wrote this, I said, just like you remember when they fail, you forget Mm -hmm. when they make it. Sure. And they had a, you know, they had a third and two late in the Minnesota game that helped put it away, where they ran a perfect play where Luke Farrell came wide open in the middle of the field. They gained 15 yards on third and two, and it was easy because it was a good play call, and Dwayne Haskins, who's a great quarterback, put it right on his hands. Luke Farrell made the catch. They were good to go. K.J. Hill's made some good third-down catches. They've done some of that. I think to me it's more the idea of you don't really believe. I think Dwayne Haskins is so good you don't really believe you can stop him. So if you try to stop the pass, then you allow the run, and yet he's still going to get you. Mm -hmm. He's still going to get you often enough in the pass game that now you lose both. So if you just admit you're going to lose on the pass game and try to take away the run game, you have a chance to win one and lose one, and that will keep you in the game. Seth, let me let you go with this question. What's Ohio State's final regular season record? That's not, we don't have to worry about the Big Ten title game because your answer will tell me whether you think they're going to get there or not. They're off this week, then they're home with Nebraska, at Michigan State, at Maryland, home with Michigan.
0: I will lean on past experience and say they are at 11-1. Okay.
1: I would be very surprised if they lose any of the next three. Hmm. Nebraska stinks. I know Maryland is, I think, similar to Purdue, right, on their upside. Maybe they can get you. They beat Texas, but they also just got shut out by Iowa. Um, and I think Michigan State's injured and is a step short on talent this year. D'Antonio is always D'Antonio. He's been a thorn in Urban's side. Um, but I will be very surprised if this Ohio State-Michigan game is not two teams that are, that win out to that game there's two one loss teams and if that happens i think that's going to be something like number 3 Michigan and number 6 Ohio State and i'm telling you the winner of that game is going to go win the Big 10 championship and go to the playoff so I, I'm not going to—this is, again, Seth, if you've listened to the podcast, you know what I like to do is force others to answer a question <laughs> that I then refuse to answer. So I'm not going to make my Michigan-Ohio State pick right now, but I will tell you I think Ohio State's going to get there at 10-1. and one. Mm-hmm. I think Michigan's going to get there at 10-1. and one. I think it's going to be a great game. I think not to—I mean, I, I've said it before. Before the season, I picked both Ohio State and Michigan to get to the playoff, If Michigan would have found a way to like beat Notre Dame in that opener, this is the exact scenario that like Michigan would be like number two right now undefeated and they come in and Ohio State has this one weird Purdue loss and then Ohio State beats Michigan and that propels Ohio State. They win the Big Ten Championship and then everybody goes, wow. Michigan is really good, though. They lost on the road at Ohio State by a touchdown. That was their only loss. They should be in the playoff. If they would have beaten Notre Dame, I think that's the kind of thing we would have been looking at, Mm -hmm. where you easily could have said reasonable people on that committee could believe Michigan and Ohio State are both among the four best teams in the country. It's going to be harder now, given that they both already have one loss. So there's not going to be a two-loss Big Ten non-champ getting in. So that dream has died, but... I think it's going to be a really good game, and I just do not think Ohio State is dead. And if you're saying you think they're going to be 11-1, and 1, you don't think Ohio State is dead.
0: Right, and Jeff Brom said today he doesn't want to have to play them again, Ohio State, but he could. I, I bet he would take it, though, wouldn't he? He would take it. If that's your problem, <laughs> if that's your biggest problem, oh, no, poor Purdue.
1: Yes. Purdue in the Big Ten Championship. What? what would, would, you, would you like Purdue in the West, or who do
0: you like to get out of there? I think I still like Wisconsin. You but, stink. Well, but it's the West, Doug. It's the West. I know. I wouldn't like the. I wouldn't like Wisconsin in the East or either SEC or or I don't know which ACC is which. But I just no. don't
1: know. I don't know if I see Wisconsin dealing with that Purdue team.
0: That, you're right. The, Wisconsin and Iowa both have to go to Purdue.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I know a lot of these teams like have seemed to have. Um, Sort of a Ohio State hangover yeah. that Minnesota played an awful game. Is Tulane Wisconsin the Nebraska. only team
0: that's won the next game?
1: Uh, Oregon State. Oh, did, won they, the next did game. they? Well, I they think did. Oregon State played a Division three team after sure, Ohio State. Sure. It might be their only win of the year. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's real. I mean, I think that's that's what happens when you play a bunch of guys as talented as Ohio State. They take a lot out of you. So I think Purdue has to watch for that. But I'll tell you what, man, Rondell Moore, that guy works against anyone. Mm-hmm. So no doubt. All right, Seth Shayner. Thank you so much for taking time uh, out of your busy day to come have a uh, person who doesn't know anything about football shout at you in a library conference room, but at least it didn't smell like farts. So um, thank you for being a loyal listener, and this was fun. And uh, I will say the news is that we have hired someone. Good. And I'm not going to say who it is yet because, uh, you know, they're just doing some HR stuff. But we have made a hire, and um, our new Ohio State... Uh, writer will be joining Buckeye Talk uh, in the near future. So um, in the meantime, um, Seth, you were fantastic, and
0: uh, keep
1: sending questions, man.
0: All right, thanks. It's Hey, it's been exciting to have skin in the game, which I guess means this is the room where it happens, right? This is the room. It has purple chairs,
1: if that makes anyone <laughs> feel better, and old uh photos of what Westerville looked like in, like, 1901. There were a bunch of horses pulling wagons, so... That's not that exciting. All right, thanks to uh, thanks to uh, thanks to you guys, um, thanks to me, because this has been a freaking cluster, and uh, we always appreciate you guys listening. Again, it's kind of been a weird time for Buckeye Talk, but uh, it's been a weird time for Ohio State, so it all works out. Um, so for Seth, I'm Doug, and that was Buckeye Talk.